the ultimate multitasking for the thinking modern marketer. Podcasts that help you future-proof yourself for your career and keep at the cutting edge of knowledge and technique. I'm Diane Young, co-founder of The Drum, introducing the best of debate from industry leaders, brought to you from the buzz of the drum arms at the can line. Pour yourself a pint and slap on some sunscreen to get into the vibe and enjoy our audio brought to you by our friends at Contented. And if you want more, subscribe on thedrum.com. Cheers. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Good afternoon. And welcome to the Drum Arms in Cannes. This is the first day of uh, Drum Arms and the second panel of the day. Uh, so thank you to the panelists. Thank you to the audience. Uh, and we have the Drum Arms uh, for the till Thursday. So there will be lots of panels, lots of discussions, lots of interesting topics. Um, so this afternoon, we are going to be talking disruption. Um, I know it's a word that our industry loves. And on this panel, I have both disruptors and disrupted. Uh, and I have made sure that the disrupted, especially the two of us, yeah. uh, we, we are sitting right next to each other for company, clearly. <laughs> but can I first of all ask the panelists to uh, introduce yourselves, please? Okay. As the as the disruptee, I'm uh, Eleanor Mills. I'm the editorial director of the Sunday Times um, in London. I'm also the editor of the Sunday Times magazine. Um, and I, with another hand, I'm the chair of women in journalism. So we've also tried to disrupt the profession from that side too. Yes. So I'm Claire Gillis. I look after the creative agencies for WPP Health. And what that means is much of the advertising that you're seeing around health at the moment is some of the disruption that we're creating. My name is Yanis Dosios. Uh, I head up the emerging businesses team at Twitter. Uh, I used to run the strategy and operations inside Twitter and now I'm t my team is tasked with creating new ways to get hired and paid um, for Twitter, leveraging Twitter data and other assets. Uh, this includes our data licensing business as well as our advertising exchange called Mopub, uh, but also any other new ways that people could see value from what Twitter offers the world. And really a focus this afternoon would be on, on health because uh, we have seen a lot of industries that have been going through that phase of disruption. I think Health Rewired, which is what uh, our panel is about, uh, it is almost at that tipping point of being disrupted, uh, of it going through a cycle of that disruption, of that change and transformation. Uh, and I'm hoping there would be some sort of lessons that we can all sort of exchange uh, between amongst ourselves and clearly put the world to right as well. Um, the first question I have is, there is this, obviously, the, the, the pace of transformation and the pace of change and innovation, and then the acceptance from the people, the audience. There's a huge gap. One, obviously, the first one being very, very fast, and the, the latter being rather slow. I mean, how do you sort of balance those two out? I mean, can, can I start with you, Claire, first? So can I just say, first of all, we love the whole disruption piece because it means we can innovate. And if you think back a couple of years um, where we didn't have Fitbits, we started innovating where we looked at wellness. And now we're innovating where it comes to medicine. So you can now swallow a pill instead of having um, an endoscopy. It'll, it'll, the camera is in the little pill and it'll go all the way through. Um, and what we want is disruption in those communication platforms too. Because that way we can get more personalized medicine to patients 
and we can change outcomes. So that's why we love the whole disruptive piece. You know, because you've used the word personalization, I'm going to go to the disruptor last. I want to bring Eleanor first. Is, um, you know, news, and, and you and I know it better than anybody else, how news in general has been disrupted. Journalism itself has been disrupted and, and fundamentally changed it more in the last decade than, say, in the last sort of 500 years. It's very sort of consumer-driven, and obviously I don't have to sort of use the word fake news, but, you know, that's what we're being, being, um, where we're going. So this personalization piece, when it comes to, to publishing, um, what yeah, are your I, views? Uh, I think the personalization is important, but I also think there's a risk in it, because I actually think that one of the strengths of a newspaper is that it's a bundle of all sorts of things that you might not come across. Actually, what happens in the digital world is that you tend to go deeper and deeper and deeper into a niche. Um, and what's good about a newspaper is that leafing through it, you may find things that you never knew you were interested in or you didn't know that you didn't know were going on and that you wouldn't have come across if you hadn't been kind of perusing that bundle. So I think the challenge for us in newspapers is to keep some of that serendipity, uh, but also to give people more of what they want. So we're doing, we're doing both. So at the Times and the Sunday Times, we've got a new AI butler who will, who will serve you up more of the content. He's called James. Um, and he'll serve you up more of your, the kind of personalised content based on other things that you've looked at. But, but at the same time, we're very keen within our editions that people can still kind of have that discoverability of news, which we think is really important. So it's, it's kind of going, trying to have it both ways. So do people accept James? Well, they don't really know they're getting James. They don't know yet. <laughs> James, James is, the, is the kind of secret weapon. What, they, what you would see is just more, you, you've looked at this story, so the, the kind of Amazon thing, you've looked at this, so you, these are other things that we think you might like, you might like based on your browsing history. But actually that, that it really propels people to, to subscribe. So if you, if you think that people may come back to the site three or four times, and the more they find things that they like, the more likely they are to sign up to your service, which is what we're all about at the moment. So that's really interesting when we're looking at disruption in healthcare. So the, um, we work a lot in China, and the equivalent of James is to try and get more people through to doctors more efficiently, because there aren't enough doctors. But of course, people don't want to go and see the robot that's sitting in A&E. No. No, they want to go straight to the little hole in the wall to see the person, but they're prepared to queue. And when you look at um, what that means for them, once they realize they get a better outcome from an algorithm, and we were just talking about algorithms earlier, actually they're very happy to hand over their data to do that. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I also think if, you're, if you're, your algorithm is, is kind of quite subtle, so you don't necessarily know that's actually what's sh showing you the things that you might like, then you're probably more likely to accept it. And it's an interesting example. Um, one of the partners of Twitter is called Black Swan. They're a developer that uses our data, and they have an arm called uh, White Swan, which is, we discussed it a little bit about it this morning, actually, which is trying to get to people that today are not getting healthcare because no one is diagnosing their condition because there's people, uh, there's, the doctors don't have enough time to actually look at this obscure case, and there's actually millions of them around the world. So they have an AI, a bot, then I'm not sure it's called James, I think there's some other name, <laughs> but what they do is they, they ask a series of questions where you can describe your symptoms, the severity, the time, and then it gradually zeroes in and eventually connects you to a physician to basically connect you to an existing illness, or actually increasingly, new illnesses that have not even been considered for exploration. So that's a good example of personalization in the healthcare that's having really significant uh, benefit. 
which can go very badly wrong because when you look at some of the algorithms that we have in Europe, actually they push people down the decision tree or down the algorithm that kind of gets you to the wrong place. Yeah. So Which is where the whole vaccination um, debate uh, is, is, is around that and you have all the scare stories. Well, well, that's no, the problem. Actually... With, yeah, that's the problem with that kind of extreme niche behaviour. So yeah. you've looked at one one vaccine story. So they keep serving you up ever more extreme content without any of the kind of balance that we we would think if you were reading the Times yeah. or the Sunday Times, yeah. we would give you facts that you can trust from proper experts, and you wouldn't go down a kind of internet wormhole into more and more craziness. So I'm really glad you're doing that. If we can jump on the vaccination thing for a second, it's something that's really, really uh, passionate for Twitter as well. Uh, because you know our, our mission is to serve the public conversation and part of that is healthy conversation which means reliable information that you can trust and specifically but, when but it comes Twitter to... But Twitter is the absolute platform which sends you to lots of things that you might might not be able to trust. I mean, how do you tell on Twitter whether you're going to a trusted yeah, source so or not? There's a lot of, that's a very big area of focus for us to actually try to find and improve in that area but specifically with vaccines, we've uh, developed an initiative where if you're searching anything related to vaccines or any keywords around that, yeah. We direct you in a new project towards a specific set of dedicated, verified sources that are very high value and high quality. Uh, for example, vaccines.gov in the US, but then there's, we have that across multiple countries around the world. Um, but we recognize that especially for some of those areas in healthcare, it is even more important for that to be moderated because of the, the damage that can be done if you get misinformation. I suppose the word here is trust that uh, I think you used as well. And it's, it's that bit of how do you actually get to a stage where you, people who are on Twitter and people who are actually using Twitter, they are trusting the information that they are getting and they're being served as well. I mean, you know, do you have initiatives in place now where you're taking the industry with you and yeah. using the data that you have? Absolutely. Actually, it's interesting to note um, we had our big kind of strategy offside with the entire leadership team at the beginning of the year and laid out all the, co the company priorities. Uh, the number one priority for the entire company is health. And by health, I don't mean health of maybe the health that you're, you're, you're working on, but specifically the health of the public conversation. Yeah. Um, and that means a combination of uh, eliminating or reducing greatly misinformation on the platform, but also eliminating the cases of abuse or people getting bullied or um, make, made feel uncomfortable about being on the platform. So that's a huge area of focus for the company with a lot of resources. And it's a combination of a few things. One of it is AI. So a very big investment in artificial intelligence, both through acquisitions, but also through a building of internal teams where we identify problematic content uh, and we eliminate it even before anyone complains uh, about it. So we have a very significant increase in the portion of the content that we eliminate uh, that is based on that type of technology. And the other thing that we're doing is a very active investment in the people, actually, a lot of human element, growing the number of people that are actively monitoring content to try to address this issue. So can I ask a quick question, just because we've got, that is very reactive content. You're very proactive from your perspective. Um, how do you stop reactive content just becoming bland? Say more about that, what do you mean? Tell more about that. So as you, uh, you know, you get higher and higher up the governance levels, then you're just reporting, if we look at vaccines, for example, you're just going to the US sites that are peer-reviewed, which is cool, you yeah. know, health practice, we're good, we're good with that, but it doesn't help any innovation. Then you're just a news stream. Yes, exactly. So that's actually not the only thing that you do. Uh, the other thing that's really powerful that I love actually about working at Twitter 
is that you get very, very rich feedback when you actually notice all the tweets that are happening every day. So there's like more than 175,000 tweets every day in the US, and I don't have the global number, I apologize, uh, about healthcare in particular. And in that, there's a lot of specific information around what's working and what's not. And we've been partnering, for example, with Harvard Medical School to analyze this data and to provide hospitals and medical institutions with specific feedback as to exactly what their patients are saying about their facilities and about how they need to improve the healthcare in their specific locations for, so that it doesn't become bland, so that it becomes very personal. I suppose the question there, uh, Eleanor, for you is that in terms of you actually serving news, I mean, as journalists, we're serving news, and there have been questions around the kind of the, the issues of trust uh, because news has become, a com has, has become commoditized. Therefore, a lot of uh, news that is being fed uh, to consumers, to people out there, is we, we leaning whether to the center, to the left, or to the right. Uh, so there's a lot of opinion so, which is the reason why there, 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 there are those conversations whether Twitter is just a platform or is it, is it, does it need to take responsibility of all the, and, and it's not just, it does not just lie with Twitter. Uh, we can talk about other platforms as well. Um, I tell you what I think is really interesting is that news has been massively disrupted in the last 10 years because of the internet, massively. Yeah. I work for a company which took a very early view that the, the content that we produced was high quality and, and that people would pay for it, that for 250 years they had paid for it in paper form. And when we brought in our paywall, everybody thought we were completely crazy. The editor of The Guardian said that we would end up with 60,000, um, you know, a community of 60,000 people who would pay and no one would pay. We've, we've just hit 500,000 subscribers. And you have pay. data on all those subscribers. Yeah, yeah, we have data on all those subscribers and um, they're paying about £30 a month, which is proper money. So it's not offsetting necessarily all the uh, print advertising revenue that we're losing, but it's certainly going some way to do that. And what's been really interesting is in the last few years, particularly with Trump and fake news and problems around vaccines and this whole business of social media and untrustworthy data, we've actually seen a huge spike um, in our subscriptions. And all the quality historic news media, the, the old, you know, the dentary media, legacy media, someone called us, um, have seen that same spike. So the New York Times subscriptions went up over a million. So I think that in a, the, we felt that we were being terribly disrupted. For a long time, there was a whole thing about citizen journalists. Everyone can be a journalist. If you've got a phone and a Twitter account, you're a journalist. Actually, I think what we've proved is that that's rubbish that journalism is a profession, that trying and testing information and teasing out facts and holding power to account is not something you can just do with a Twitter account because you quickly slip into kind of massive sensationalism and you don't know what's real. And so part of the disruption has actually been a return to a sense of kind of trusted sources. And I think that that's been particularly prevalent here because lots of brands have ended up next to you know, content, jihadi, you know, jihadi propaganda, horse porn, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, which has not been very helpful for the brands either. So there has been a kind of retreat back into safer spaces online. And it's why people like Twitter and Facebook are now having to put a large amount of resources into cleaning up their platforms, which frankly I would say is well overdue. So I think there's something in this disruption business which actually takes you back to a kind of what is trust, what is quality, what the, and the actual kind of mechanisms of journalism where facts are, are sieved and stress tested and it's not just somebody's opinion.
Dennis? I think actually I completely agree with that. And I actually don't see Twitter as competitive to the news industry in any way. I actually see it as a megaphone for the news industry and for existing publishers. Yeah, I think it can, can definitely and be complementary. We yeah. try to use it now to tell people about the content that we've got. And we're actually forming some really cool partnerships with news organizations around the world to help them do things like reach more audience uh, or um, engage their audience more or even create very new formats for uh, delivering your content to the world, um, which actually resonates with the way people want to consume content. Maybe they don't want to consume it as a very long article in one place that has everything in it. Maybe they want to see a, a lot of different views amongst many trusted news sources side by side. So we've been doing a lot of work with, um, for example, right now World Cup is happening, Women's World Cup. We're working with Fox right now to say, let's create a dedicated page for every single game of the World Cup so that you can actually see both whenever a goal is happening, uh, the goal itself, but also all the commentary from all the different news outlets, reliable ones, to figure out exactly what the discussion around that is. Same thing for every election, same thing for every news uh, happening. So I think that to me is a way that the news industry can actually coincide together with those services, innovate, and disrupt itself in a way that they still are largely in control. Um, we've started using from um, my newspaper, Twitter, so that you can link together a whole series of stories on exactly. the same topic in a thread. So you can say, you know, if you're interested in the news story, this is where it came from, this is the interview in the magazine, yeah. here's some exclusive pictures, this is some comment from around the place, this is kind of how it's going crazy, and here are some kind of comments or something. That's well, I think, I think that it's, that's definitely changed. One of, one of the things that's obviously clearly coming out of uh, this is, you know, obviously very, very passionate uh, panel I have, uh, is, is, is emotion. Uh, and no, the reason I use that word is because, uh, and Claire, I would like you to come in here, is especially with health, it is a very emotional uh, issue because it's a very personal issue. And listening to... Well, to actually, it's interesting you say that because it's only interesting and you're only passionate if something bad's going to happen. <laughs> If, you're, if you've got a fungal toenail, you're not that passionate about it, really. I'm pretty worked up about that. Have you got a fungal toenail? <laughs> Let's not talk about it in can. This saying. might be too much information. <laughs> not me personally, I'm just saying. My network. Going from horse porn to fungal toenails. So I think, yeah. I think it's if That's there is really bad an impact. Put <laughs> if there's an impact Go on it, that's, that's, where, that's where it's important to all of us. And actually, there was a study that was done that said um, people were more likely to pay um, for oncology drugs if it were for their brother, sister, parent, child than they were for themselves. So it's, it's about who it's impacting, how much it's impacting, and, and whether it actually feels real. Because we all know smokers, for example, who don't stop. Even though on the packets, they've got the dreadful pictures so I, yeah I, I, I suppose that my, my question here is listening to both Yanis and Eleanor whether there's sort of tales of caution for the health industry and from your point of view how um, uh, optimistic or, or indeed uh, you know pessimistic you are with the kind of changes that are coming at a really really bloody fast pace when it comes to healthcare at the moment oh I'm super optimistic about it because I think unless you've got that disruption you don't get the innovation and you don't get the innovation in therapies and you don't have people talking about it so we can actually get better outcomes for all patients. And this is about access to healthcare. You know, you can look at a road in London, it's a mile long and there's a, there is um, a life expectancy difference of 10 years. 
until we all start talking about this, communicating about it, talking about outcomes, and saying it's not fair that if you have breast cancer and because you live in one zip code and you have breast cancer that you're more likely to survive. Until we have those discussions, until the information is out there, we're not going to make a difference. We're not going to get that outcome. Um, I, I think that the people's capacity to communicate and to join up data sets and people all over the world had a massively transforming um, effect on healthcare. I mean, a, a, a personal experience, my stepmother died last year from brain cancer, and her story, she talked about it in the House of Lords in the UK, Tessa Gile, and um, she talked about her brain cancer, and she'd had the most incredible state-of-the-art treatment, kind of from America, nanoparticles, all sorts of things. It didn't actually help, she died. But what was set up in, as her legacy, which is now being joined up all over the world, is very, very best practice on how you deal with particularly aggressive forms of, of brain tumour. And that's something that comes from social media and innovation in health. And, but what's necessary is to tie all those individual experiences together, because it has to be a kind of global project, because there aren't that many of the people with this thing in any one place. And, you, and I think the technology... To, to link them all up and to really look at the outcomes and what works is being massively um, turbo-boosted by the fact that people can connect all that data yeah, and, and tell their stories. Yeah, I think what you just said, um, and going back to passion that you mentioned, um, I think standing for something is actually something that people are increasingly looking for in order to pay attention in social media. And we're seeing more of our brands that are actually using, in this case, Twitter, but I'm sure other services as well, they really respond very much to a cause having a particular striking and emotional chord with them. Yeah. Um, so for example, Nike connected with Kaepernick yeah. around standing for something. Um, you know, or you know, when Serena Williams lost you know, the first kind of steps of her baby, uh, like a mother, like that campaign. So I think that there's an opportunity in healthcare for uh, these topics to become more personal and emotional, even if you don't have a relative suffering from that disease, if the pharmaceutical company, the healthcare provider ties it to a concept that people really respond to, and I think that's, that's where Twitter could really help create the action awareness. So for us, it's about creativity and linking it to the outcomes, because then you overcome the inertia, and we're all about overcoming that health inertia. But, but I think it's telling stories, isn't it? And it's using stories to explain how the interconnectedness can really help the person that you love get the, right, the treatment that they need in the most kind of specific way tailored, personalized way. And therefore, I think that all these things linked up, there's a kind of personalization element, there's a quality element, there's a trust element, and actually what comes out of disruption are, are, are all those things, that you actually go back to those things as the building blocks of how you survive it and how you then kind of try and harness it to do something better. Uh, so the last question, sorry, I'm just going to say it's a good communication strategy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, which, which, is why, which brings me to the last question before I open the floor to the audience is that, you know, this interconnectivity that we're all talking about, you, you have your data points, you have the communication, you have a narrative, you have trusted sources. Who, I mean, what does the panel think in terms of responsibility? Who takes the responsibility for, for connecting all, all these dots? Well, as a trusted media brand, you know, we do. We take, we take that responsibility incredibly seriously and there are very stringent rules and laws which, which govern what we can and can't say and how we say it. And that's partly what makes, that's what makes us publishers and that's also makes us trusted brands because there are all those 
rules around the kind of content that we produce. And it's why I think there's a real source of tension between what the kind of old media brands do and the trust that they have and the problems that Facebook particularly have got and that Twitter has had, particularly in dealing with really nasty incidents which aren't shut down kind of quick enough. And I think for us, it's about understanding what the local nuances are, because right across the world, there's different legislation, um, different data access. You have to understand what the local nuances are, but be able to take best practice from everywhere. But I do, I'm really um, keen on having multidisciplinary um, guidelines and governance to make sure that we do get the best outcome from it. And Yanis, are you taking the responsibility for yourself? Twitter, for Twitter, it is uh, to be to serve the public conversation and the healthy public conversation. Um, and it's along the investments that I talked about why the number one priority for the company is that. It is to combat misinformation. Um, it is to eliminate um, bullying or people actually not feeling comfortable on the platform, both the digital and physical safety of people based on what they do on the platform. And that's a very, very big undertaking. That's a multi-year yeah. undertaking, very difficult, but it's something that we're absolutely committed to. But I agree with you, and I'm glad with you that publishers are also feeling extremely responsible about that as well. We need to work together. It's a very difficult problem, and I don't think it's a responsibility only of one party to fix this. But I think that the, a lot of the internet platforms have been quite late to the party yes. in admitting that they did actually have any responsibility for the stuff that was on their platforms at all. And certainly from our perspective, if you're going to take all the uh, advertising dollars on your platforms, then you have to have some responsibility for the content that's on them. We've certainly always done that as publishers. And I think that part of the problems at the moment is that, that there's still a real kind of paradoxical disconnect between some of the kind of platitudes which are trotted out and the actual reality of what's going on on the, on the platforms. I'm not, I'm not, I think Twitter is, is getting a bit better and I think that they are well, kind of trying to help. But yeah. I think that there's still, if you think they're taking 95% of all the digital advertising, they're not taking 95% of the, of the responsibility for the kind of discourse that goes on yeah. on their platforms. And, and the fact that Twitter is here uh, on our panel talking yeah, about it's a, it's it loud It's a very good sign. Well. No, that's great. No, but I think it's a very important responsibility, completely agree. Yeah, so we, we, can, we can bash the people I mean, who have the biggest place in the, uh, on the croisette on the beach. Uh, just, and they're definitely not here. Just, and, and the converse of that, though, as a, as a journalist, I feel really passionately about free speech. And I think that there's... But while we say you need to clean up your act, and we do understand that you get some real crazies commenting on stuff, because we certainly have that on our, on our content. I, I, I sympathize as, as someone who, as I used to write a column, I used to get people with mad green ink and kind of a man who'd send me huge crucifixes with me being crucified on every week. So I, I really do understand what I'm talking about. Um, but, I, but I do think that there's still, you know, there's still quite a long way, long way to go well, on that. But sorry, I'm sorry. Email, yeah. No, but, but I also think there's a free speech point here because who is it? Who's the arbiter of what Twitter takes down? Who's the arbiter on Facebook of who qualifies as somebody who's not allowed to be heard and who doesn't? I think while we don't want real nastiness out there, and I agree about healthy conversation, we also don't want un, un, undemocratic uh, kind of huge technology companies deciding what we can and can't look at. So I'm, I'm, I'm also quite scared about a kind of big brother kind of technological revolution when it all now gets completely shut down. I don't think that's a great idea well, either. Which, you need a balance. Which, which is why I think sort of going back to, to healthcare, I think that that could be, well, <laughs> well no, but that, that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah. Is going back to healthcare, is, is, is picking up on, on, on that point is that in terms of sort of regulators, in terms of arbitration of what is is ethical and what is good and what is in, and and you you've been talking about outcomes as well. I think 
and you said you're positive about what's happening at the moment. Where do you think that responsibility lies? Or are, are you still sort of looking at other industries that have been disrupted? I think in order to get um, balance, you need that multidisciplinary group. It can't just be the remit of government or medicine or the public. It has to be that uh, consensus because then we, we might get to a, a less extreme out. There might be less innovation, but at least it's safe. And we are still talking about people's health here. Uh, so I would like to open the floor to questions. So uh, who wants to go first? And also, could you please uh, put your hand up and also say who you are and where you're from, please? Hi, this is Jake Litke from MediaGel. Um, as it regards to health, how are your organizations handling or dealing with what's happening with cannabis, both in the US and internationally? Because that's going to be very transformative. Love it. <laughs> so there are many different variations of cannabis. And there are some that are licensed by governments and there are, there's data that supports the outcomes there. Um, on a very personal level, I'd be, I'd be worried um, if there were just any old variety of cannabis um, kicking around the streets that, that people could take indiscriminately. That's a very personal view. Um, as an editor, I think the kind of explosion in um, a very different kind of attitude to cannabis is, is completely fascinating. I've got, I think, three different features kind of coming into my magazine, one on cannabidinoils and on all those kind of, yeah, the, um, and the CBD oils and kind of which is all kind of legal and how that's being used and the explosion of businesses around that. And also I've got an incredibly moving story of a, a parent who wants um, pure cannabis oil to treat her daughter's epilepsy and can't get it in the UK, even though the UK government said that it should be available. And the problems going on within our health health system because the minister said it should be available, but actually, if you look at the way that um, drugs come into our health system through Nice, they haven't actually been through enough clinical trials for for them to say that they're happy with. Um, with actually uh, using, putting out prescriptions for it. And the, the parents are having to take the child to um, Holland. They're actually moved to Holland so that they can have the treatment there. So there seems to be some real iniquities in the way we talk about it. Um, as the mother of teenage girls, it's quite, the conversation around cannabis is quite interesting because there's all the stuff coming from America where it's legal in all these states. Yeah, it's kind of illegal here. So as a mum, you're going, mm, don't think, you know, you should be doing but that, and they say, well, it's legal over here. So I think that there are, there are lots of interesting, from a journalistic point of view, it's a fascinating subject at the moment. But from a mother's point of view, it's, a, it's quite tricky. You can't, just say, I, can't I think, just say no. I think the question there from a mother's point of view is, why is it legal? Is it legal because it's just the same as alcohol? Well, or is it legal because people earn a lot of money from the taxation? Well, they earn a lot of money from the taxation of alcohol, don't they? And therefore, um, there was a, there was an interesting uh, league table of drugs which caused harm the other the other week, where cannabis was at about sixth and alcohol was number yeah. one. So why do we why do we say alcohol's fine and cannabis isn't? Personally, I'm I'm in favour of legalisation. Oh well, the big tobacco companies <laughs> are now investing in, in cannabis. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're going to, aren't they? Because they're seeing it as the next kind of the green gold rush, they call it. Um, but it, I worry that a lot of the stuff that's being produced 
um, you know, in LA and stuff, it's incredibly strong. In New, you know, New Jersey or whatever. And coming from the country that has <laughs> legalized it in some states, uh, it's interesting a lot because there's been a lot of discussion around how we, how advertising around cannabis should happen and could happen, and what regulations we need to have around making sure that the advertiser is legal and appropriate for advertising. But that's something that we are considering in specific markets or specific states where it's legalized. As a father of three young boys, I'm also very <laughs> not happy about that personally. Just do, do you promote it on Twitter? Do you take kind of advertising uh, there's for, some for cannabis in those, in in those specific states? markets, it, it is something that, that gets considered in a lot. Yes, it's not and a major, but it is something. And how do you serve those ads up so that they just appear in states where it's legal, not on somebody's feed where it's still illegal? No, there's obviously geographical targeting, um, pretty tight controls on that one. Oh, we've got another question. No, 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 I, I would like you to, because it's okay. being recorded. Uh, Simon Stebbing from Wonderman Thompson Health. Um, you talk about disrupting, innovating, but then you talk about, for example, in, from your journalistic point of view, that things need to be properly researched and take appropriate time. But we live in this expectation economy where people want things and they want it now. But how do you innovate, disrupt when the healthcare cycle, the journalist cycle is so slow and cumbersome and we get left behind when someone might be tweeting something out that might not be 100% correct, but is some information better than none? I think a little information can be a really dangerous thing. And I think we've seen that, we've seen that a lot. And people taking a kind of half-baked scientific study and extrapolating out of it all sorts of scary things. I and mean, that's really what happened with, with all the vaxxers and, and, the, and crazy Dr. Andrew. I mean, we, at the Sunday Times, we outed him as a total charlatan with his views based on absolutely nothing 10, 15 years ago, and then he moved to America and started doing it again. And because of the internet, it kind of, it, everyone started going kind of down, down the wormholes and thinking that it was real. I mean, we were, we were really shocked when we'd taken him down in such a major way in the UK that he could then go on and do it in America, and the science that it was based on was rubbish. So really good proper journalism does, does take some time, but I think that when you produce it, and particularly if, if you can then kind of use Twitter and those other platforms to really propel it, it can then be kind of very meaningful and um, kind of dig in. I mean, the, I think the problem with the investigations we did on the Vaxaman is it was actually pre-social media. So a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff was not as prominent as it would be if we'd done it today. So actually, we've been, we've been trying to put it out again. But I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's a balance, isn't it? So you can put things out quickly, which are kind of half-baked and, and wrong. And what we've seen is we've, we've actually moved away from a, a kind of rolling news, publishing stuff all the time model to um, a, an edition strategy where we publish three times a day and people know that they're going to get updates. And actually... Most people prefer that. I mean, as a news junkie, I want to know what's going on all the time. But actually, most of our customers are not like obsessed by the news cycle, and they're quite happy to wait a kind of few hours and get a reasoned opinion from like a super expert, someone who really knows about it. And they feel that you know that's that's kind of worth worth waiting for a bit of thinking time on. Which is the reason why there has been a resurgence of so-called slow journalism. So there, there is a lot of that that is happening at the moment. But I would like Yanis to uh, come in. There's, a, there's an interesting synergy though here that I want to call out, which is once a technology has been developed or a solution found or a conclusion scientifically based or with the right level of rigor has been found, at least that last mile of getting that propagated and broadly communicated quickly to the world has been dramatically accelerated. 
And I think you could use Facebook, you could use Google. Specifically with Twitter, the big thing is that the audience on Twitter is very much the folks who define the conversation, who set the culture, who get people to listen to them. So that is a place where um, when you start actually launching a campaign of information, it can dramatically accelerate. So at least on that piece, there's a lot of uh, speed. There's also on the flip side, there's a lot of signals, and this is the interesting question, there's a lot of signals that you get with more than 100 million tweets a day um, around what, what is happening in the world, what people are talking about, how they're feeling, where if you apply AI to it in, in responsible ways, you could glean incredible insights. Some of them may not be scientific enough to be healthcare ready, but they can definitely be very much innovative when you're developing new products. And the question is, how do you leverage that? And there's a lot of innovation that we're seeing from a lot of our partners in trying to identify what are those trends that we're not even knowing to ask about, gleaning it from all the data, and how do we translate those trends into products that actually work? To me, that's a really big area of opportunity, but it needs more work right now. Um, what I'm interested to know um, from Twitter is that often within Twitter, you get a kind of um, a kind of self-magnifying echo chamber of lots of people who, are, who think the same way as you do because of because of who you follow. Um, do you think that Twitter has a responsibility to kind of inject a bit of the, 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 the kind of the reality maybe or a different point of view into yeah. that? Because certainly as a newspaper journalist, it's about balance. You know, if you give one point of view, you try and give another. You're trying to give a, a rounded portrait of what's going on. And I think some of the problems, particularly with Twitter, is you go down your wormhole where, where everybody agrees with each other and you actually I, need a slightly discordant... Yeah, I, I fully agree. Actually, the, the purpose of the company is to serve the public conversation, not with the person who agrees with you, but yeah. with the world. Yeah. And you are right, there's been studies that have found that on very sensitive subject, like you know, life, pro-life, et cetera, yeah. or guns or anything like that, that people of the one side speak to the people of the same side. And yeah. the lone ranger that you know, decides to jump in in another conversation often gets really jumped on and they yeah. feel you know, it's really, really difficult. So one of the things that we're trying to do very much is to uh, invest more in conversation by shifting from following individual people to following interests. Yeah. So if you're following an interest, that automatically means that all the key people that are talking about this and all the news outlets, regardless of uh, what they believe, are gonna be shown in that particular interest you follow and that will invite conversation between people of opposing views. Yeah. That to me is super, super important for us to get right. And that's not in human nature naturally. We like to be agreed with. We generally don't like to be disagree with, except for this panel, which is obviously very comfortable. Um, but I will say, I we'd be agreeing rather. No, but I love disagreeing with you. You're great. Uh, but I would say, overall, though, this is an area that we're actively investing in, moving from trying to find your buddy on the street to finding the overall community that cares about the subject you care about, regardless of whether they're pro or con. If we can get the world to talk more as a result of that, that would be a massive. That would be what our mission is. Yeah, no, I think I think that would be really important. On that rather ambitious note, is there is is there uh, one last question? Um, uh, I take it there isn't. So, can I please have a really big round of applause for my very very passionate sort of panel? Thank you very much. Thank you to the audience. The ultimate multitasking for the thinking modern marketer. Podcasts that help you future-proof yourself for your career and keep at the cutting edge of knowledge and technique. I'm Diane Young, co-founder of The Drum, introducing the best of debate from industry leaders, brought to you from the buzz of the drum arms at the can line. Pour yourself a pint and slap on some sunscreen to get into the vibe and enjoy our audio brought to you by our friends at Contented. And if you want more, subscribe on thedrum.com. 
Cheers.